charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an astro-scale and market-scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Space to Grow. We are a podcast focused on the intersection of economics, technology, and sustainability in space. We're going to have to grow these partnerships between government, industry, academia, and all of you out there to make sure that we have a sustainable and growing space economy. I'm Chris Blackerby coming to you from Tokyo. And with me, as always, is Charity. What's up? Hey, Chris. Well, so this episode is going to come out a little later, Hmm. but I wanted to say it anyways. Happy Lunar New Year. Yeah. And same to you. Uh, (laughs) What are the the limitations on that? I wonder about like the regular New Year. We can go like a month in or is it the first time you see Uh, someone after? Yeah, I think the first time you see someone after the Lunar New Year. But let's just Which pre- I have seen you just just go just with pretend, it. Just go yeah, with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, happy lunar new year to you too. But I think what you're doing here is giving us a hint at who we're going to be talking to. Perhaps I am. Perhaps I am. So there's one space player that we cannot ignore. And so why not have a guest on that can unpack the many questions we have surrounding their activities in space? Yeah. Um, let me think who you might be talking <laughs> about. Uh, oh, yeah. Maybe it's China. Uh, yeah. Today's guest is Blaine Curcio. Uh, Blaine is one of the foremost global experts on the Chinese space sector. Uh, and uh, we had a great conversation with him talking about uh, a variety of things. We could dive into so much on China space and we tried to keep it a bit focused for a half hour conversation, but I think we got deep into a lot of interesting aspects. Uh, Blaine wears multiple hats. He's the founder of Orbital Gateway Consulting, uh, just focused on consulting companies for the commercial opportunities in the Chinese space sector. He's also a senior affiliate consultant with Euroconsult. And he's the host of Dongfang Hour, which is a podcast and website that dives deep into the Chinese space sector. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look too much at Dongfang uh, Charity, but it's pretty cool. They a go bit. pretty deep. Yeah, yeah. They go pretty A lot of information deep. on that website. Really oh, good. so much is there. So um, it, it's a great resource. So uh, Blaine has a degrees in international business and MBA. He's worked for Northern Sky Research and SES in the past. Oh, and he's fluent in Mandarin. Uh, lives in Hong Kong for the past 10 years, so has really unique insights into what's happening in China uh, and and how that's going to impact uh, the global space community and economy. So uh, it's a great conversation. Do you have anything else to add there, Charity? No, let's get into it. Let's do it. Here's our talk with Blaine. Hey, Blaine. Welcome to Space to Grow. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. We've uh, we've had a lot of experts on the policy, business, technology of space uh, from around the world, but we haven't really had someone from China. So your insights and your background uh, are really going to be helpful for us and listeners to to understand what's going on in China. So um, uh, it, we're excited we're excited to hear from you. Starting first uh, from a non-space question. Um, I guess you haven't been in the region the past couple of weeks, but I wonder tracking the news, how's the perception of the, the Beijing Olympics from inside China looking out? Are they, are they feeling excited, proud? What's the, what's the, uh, the view of, of the Olympics from China? Yeah, that's that's an interesting, uh, interesting question. So, I mean, it seems to be a lot of pride and excitement for sure. I mean, there's been, um, I've seen a lot of 
generally positive articles written. Now, granted, you're reading, you know, Chinese media about the Chinese uh, Beijing Winter Olympics. They're probably not going to be terribly negative. Um, but I mean, in general, I think it's been perceived as, as being quite, quite positive. And I mean, there's a couple of cool highlights, I guess, that kind of relate to sustainability, although not in a space context. But there was the, um, I think it was the big ski jump that was built near the, I think it's the Shogong, the former Shogong steel plant. It was like the biggest steel plant in Beijing. It created so much pollution. And then there was this massive urban renewal project where they basically took down the steel mill and they made it into some new apartments and some big parks and made it all. And then the Olympic ski jump, I, I think is the event, um, was built at this new kind of uh, urban renovation kind of th- park. And uh, there was a kind of a funny tweet by uh, a writer's journalist saying like, why the heck are we here? Because they're just out in the outskirts of Beijing and what looks kind of like, you know, like a, like a post-Soviet kind of industrial wasteland. But um, a- apparently it, it, it's a heck of a lot nicer than it was before. They've done a lot of renovation on this, uh, this Shogong steel mill. And, and I think that the angle of that photo wasn't very flattering, but, but digressing, I think um, a lot of positivity. I, I think there's been probably a lot of um, looking at the fact that it's a pretty efficient Olympics. I don't think they've spent very much money. I mean, all the stadiums have been reused, which is kind of nice, or, you know, a lot of them have been reused. Um, and that kind of, I, I suppose has made it a bit less of a, um, you know, all singing, all dancing, like massive infrastructure project of sorts for 10 years beforehand. So all these things are probably a, a nice thing for, for, the, for the, you know, Beijing municipality. Um, and then I think overall in terms of the athletes, you know, it's, it's been a really, I've seen, um, there's that Japanese figure skater whose name is is eluding me, but uh, he's apparently like a massive celebrity among Chinese netizens because he's just like, uh, you know, looks kind of like an anime character with very kind of sharp angles in his face. And, and you know, all the women love him and all these things. And um, it's really cool to see, uh, again, like Ch- China, Japan, this is not the, the deepest friendship o- over the centuries, uh, have this really kind of... Um, pop cultural phenomenon of, of Chinese really, really uh, applauding this guy. And, and just kind of the last funny and, and I guess maybe politically slightly sensitive element to that is that this figure skater, there's some similarity to Winnie the Pooh or something like that. And and of course, in China, there's also you know, Xi Jinping and there, there's this discussion of he looking a little bit like Winnie the Pooh and that being quite a hot topic where you can't really <laughs> talk about it. But again, I, I think... And I, I could be wrong, but I think I saw a tweet where they were throwing little Winnie the Pooh bear dolls onto the ice after this Japanese guy had skated, and it was totally fine. Um, but yeah, so you know, it's been a strange Olympics with those kind of weird little highlights. But um, if I if I come up with the name of that Japanese skater, I'll I'll, I'll let you know. I should know, and I know who you're talking about, but um, but I can't there's recall worse, the name either. There's worse things to be compared to, I think. And and. and and Teddy bear. But that reference to uh, Xi Jinping, I, I've never heard that, but I kind of see it. <laughs> <laughs> don't uh, don't well, say that on the other side of the border. If you're a... <laughs> say, on to the conversation, Chris. Uh, yes, um... I will switch the conversation. But I would I would say I did see that 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 uh, that tweet about the the transformation of the venue. That was incredible uh, with the ski mm-hmm. jump with the kind of yep. big uh, plant in the background. It's, um, it is incredible what they've done. So yes, onto the conversation, Charity, you were saying. <laughs> so Blaine, tell us about your background. You went to university in Illinois. And is that where you're from originally? Illinois? Yeah, so, so I'm yeah. from the suburbs of Chicago originally. I spent the first uh, 20 years of my life there. And then I've spent most of the last, uh, I guess, 12 and a half, 13 years of my life in, in China and then in Hong Kong as well. So I'd spent about six years in the main, uh, in mainland China and then about six years in, uh, in Hong Kong uh, over that time. Um, 
over the first, say, seven years, eight years of my career, I was primarily focused on SATCOM. So I worked uh, initially with SES, Global Satellite Operator, working in their kind of market research and, and kind of market intelligence uh, team. I then worked with Northern Sky Research doing primarily SATCOM-related market research consulting. And then about uh, almost five years ago now, I kind of started to see that the Chinese space sector was expanding very, very rapidly. And uh, unfortunately, at the time, again, I was very focused on SATCOM. And SATCOM is like the one thing in China that's a well-established monopoly, and there's just not a whole lot going on there in the SATCOM sector, even in this age of really rapidly growing Chinese new space. And so in the context of my previous job, I'm you know, very SATCOM focused. I wasn't really getting much of a chance to look at this rapidly evolving Chinese space sector, uh, which was unfortunate because at the time I had been living in China for a number of years already just by chance. And I spoke pretty good Mandarin and like I, I could conceivably kind of start studying this if I really wanted to. Um, and so at that time, I, I left my, my job at NSR and just started my own company in Hong Kong and just really started digging into what the heck is going on in this rapidly emerging Chinese commercial space sector. Um, I found an excellent business partner in Beijing who's, who's Chinese and who used to work for the state-owned enterprises and now is doing his own consulting. And so there's been a really good relationship there in terms of, of certain things that, you know, networks that I have outside that he does not have or networks that he has inside that I do not have, this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's been a fascinating five years now to watch this uh, this Chinese commercial space sector emerge from what was literally zero at the end of 2014 and, and you know, like 15 companies when I started following it in like 2017. And now we have, you know, you could you could reasonably say 200 companies, depending on your definition of new space. Um, and so, yeah, oh, it's, it's been a fascinating five right. years. Uh, well, like the I mean, definition yeah. of commercial, I think that's up in the air, too. It, yes. There's a lot of discussion on what that means. Yes, the definition of commercial is is definitely um, it's a sticky one or it's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah, so I mean, commercial. I, I think if we, I've heard a bunch of different definitions, and one that I think is is let's say most uh, the best one liner is just you know a company that is meant to make money. I think it's still a little bit oversimplified in the sense that like Cask is also I mean Cask does not have unlimited money. Their mandate is not to just incinerate money by by you know uh, as, as opposed to making money. Um, but I think commercial companies, if we talk about in a kind of more general sense, it would just be companies that are not like 100% state-owned enterprises, basically. It's kind of, this This is definitely not commercial. CASC, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, uh, CASIC. And if it's a subsidiary of CASIC that is kind of not quite fully owned by CASIC, it can be a commercial company. So um, there's definitely different flavors of commercial and, and definitely some commercial companies are like a handful of people in a garage being funded by venture capitalists, as we might consider commercial companies to be. But some of them are definitely like a large team of scientists being carved out of the Chinese Academy of Science with a lot of resources and probably some implicit contract guarantees from the CAS. Mm -hmm. and, and it might not actually be what we would consider like a, a real kind of startup -y commercial company. But um, yes, in China, they could all be considered commercial. But but there but the, and there's venture capital funding. Is that coming from inside China or is that international? Where's the venture capital coming from? Primarily, well, it'd be coming from inside of China. Although a handful of the VCs within China are like um, Chinese, I guess affiliates or or branches of Western VCs. So I, I guess a couple of examples like Sequoia, uh, China has invested in a few space companies. Also Matrix Partners, um, and. I think one of the things when, I, when I've spoken with Chinese commercial companies about this, this topic of, you know, do you ever receive Western funding or, or is there any advantage in receiving Western funding? Um, the answer that I would typically get is no, there's not, there's actually, there's enough money going into the space sector from China alone. And there's enough kind of strings attached and kind of difficulties in taking foreign money 
to where it's just not worth the hassle because it's like, well, we have so many investors coming to us in China. And again, to, to take foreign investment is just for a lot of companies, not so straightforward. So it's it's almost entirely coming from from China, I would say, or possibly. I mean, 100 percent is always a questionable number to use, but it might be 100 percent coming from China. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I would expect. That's what I'd expect to see to see that. Mm. Um, and, and it's coming in at, at, at all different areas of the of the Chinese space sector. I mean, there's investment coming in on, on launch, I know, and on on other aspects of exploration. There's not just one specific aspect of space that's being invested in. For sure. And I think this has been one of the really interesting things to watch, even over the last year or so, has been this kind of broadening out of the the verticals that are being invested into. So up until, let's say, a year ago, most of the funding rounds, most of the company creation, it would be these kind of, let's say, systems level companies, the companies building rockets, the companies building satellites, whatever else. And now we've started to see you know, companies building electric ion thrusters or companies building uh, laser intersatellite communication terminal kind of kind of things. So basically these much more specialized subsystem, well, not much more, spe- these, these sort of more niche subsystem type components. Um, and these have oftentimes been teams of researchers coming out of some you know, specialized research institute and, and just making a startup. And, and I think from that perspective, it's, it's an interesting way of innovating because I think the Chinese system for all of the benefits that it may have does not do particularly well at, um, you know, rapid innovation in like cutting edge stuff. You know, when you work in these big state owned, state owned uh, enterprises, there, there's, you know, you have a job for life. The incentives are not particularly, um, you, you're not, there's not a lot of, of fail fast, kind of moving very fast mindset, right? Uh, and with these spinoffs, there's a lot more economic incentive. Like you can get rich if your company continues mm-hmm. to, to have, you know, bigger rounds of funding and you own a big piece of the company and the valuation goes up. I mean, you, you can you can get rich um, and, and you can do really cool stuff. And so we've seen, Again, over the last six, 12 months, an increasing number of small teams uh, creating companies that are doing subsystems level kind of niche technologies that are seen as highly, uh, highly critical for the next you know, generation of, of space infrastructure. So you can tell by all the questions we have so far, you know, there's a lot we don't know <laughs> here. And I was just wondering, you know, there's uh there's probably a lot of misinformation out there. I was wondering what is the number one thing you think the West doesn't really understand about the Chinese space program? Yeah, there's a fair amount of misinformation. The number one thing, I think one one thing that I hear a lot is this assumption that China, that the government is kind of omnipotent and that if they say, build, for example, build us a 5,000 satellite LEO broadband constellation, there's an impression that like that will just get done tomorrow and that uh, there's no, no, no questions asked. Like the guy at the top says, do this and everyone just falls into line. And at the end of the day, that's, that's definitely an oversimplification in the sense that you do have in this system, a lot of different competing forces. You have different factions, you have different entities that have their own interests and, and you have incentives that don't, really make it that easy. So just to give, I mean, in the example of, of Leo broadband constellation, what we initially saw from China is two broadband constellation plants, Hongyan and Hongyun. These would have been announced in like 2016, 2015. And they were, they're being done by, by Cask and Kasich respectively. Yeah. And these two constellations, uh, if you are having a constellation being developed by Cask, 
Cask builds their own satellites. Cask builds their own rockets. Cask builds most of their own stuff. So they're going to presumably want to source most of this stuff from themselves, even if that's not the optimal thing to do. They're going to say, well, you know, so we build our own rockets. Why would we go and use a commercial rocket? And so you then for years, for several years, like these constellations didn't really make a whole lot of progress. Now, granted, part of the reason for that, I think, is the relative lack of political support during that time. We've seen that change recently. But more recently, we've also seen the creation of this new company, China Satellite Networks Limited, which is at the same level of the state-owned hierarchy as Kask and Kasich. And this China SatNet, they, by virtue of being at the same level of the state-owned hierarchy, they now can actually go and buy satellites from whomever they want and buy rockets from whomever they want, in theory. And, and it, it has made it a bit more efficient to deploy this constellation. But getting back to the point, I mean, China has been wanting to develop this constellation for a long time, and it hasn't really made a whole lot of progress in doing that. They have a grand total of like three LEO broadband satellites in orbit right now. Yeah, I think it'd be three. And if we compare that to Starlink, I guess it would be rather more than three. And so, um, again, I, I think there's this, I mean, the system in China does have a high degree of, you know, the guy at the top says something and many people fall into line. But there is still just this, there, there's a lot of different incentives and a lot of just different actors that want their piece and that might not want things to move extremely quickly in some cases. So it, it just makes things mm -hmm. a bit more complicated than just, oh, this guy says this and it, it just happens. They're realizing they need an ecosystem, a whole space yeah. ecosystem for industry to really thrive. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. Yes, is the, is is this kind of, and I think that's really, yeah, the, the, taking away a little bit of the power from the like from Cask, for example, because Cask they basically have had a monopoly on a lot of elements of Chinese space until fairly recently. So, so yeah, I guess that that system is is probably yeah what is uh a little bit on the way out now in favor of a bit more of a sort of innovation based kind of more balanced system um yeah and so this the china satellite group i mean there's you know they filed itu filing for what thirteen thousand satellites something, something like that yeah um so they don't have many yet but but what do you think do you see this as a competition to the spacex's and, and one webs or are they are they gonna get there because of this kind of driving uh, direction? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think so. I mean, when we look right now at what China has in terms of satellite manufacturing capabilities, right? So small set batch manufacturing. This is a, the, the phrase batch manufacturing is a very hot phrase in China right now. So uh, so the, literally batch manufacturing. And they, many different satellite manufacturers. So this includes CASC, KASIC, Galaxy Space, CGSTL, Shanghai Engineering Center for Microsatellites, Comsat, and Minospace, uh, and GSpace, GSpace, so that's eight. There are eight satellite manufacturers mm. that are in advanced stages or have already completed what they would call like batch satellite manufacturing factories. And that would be factories that can make between, let's say, 80 and 250 satellites per year of between like one and 300 kilograms per satellite. Yeah. And they're doing and again, it? They're, they're actually doing that? Uh, so That's now we have, yeah, so again, of, of those eight companies that I just mentioned, uh, there are six, I would say, that can provably build, let's say, like a batch of six satellites in a month or six weeks or something like that to, to launch it. So like, for, for example, mm -hmm. Galaxy Space, they're one of the commercial ones that are building communication satellites. They have their first batch of six satellites being launched at the end of this month. And that that would have probably taken them some 
nine to 12 months to develop those six. But then I think that that, that pace moves through. I mean, they're, they iterate very quickly. Um, the other ones like Cask and Kasich, they have these two big facilities in, uh, in Tianjin and, uh, and Wuhan, respectively. Those two facilities are, are done, basically, and, and, and capable of producing like 100-ish satellites per year uh, at the moment. So, yeah, I mean, I think and, and like the other one that I mentioned, CGSTL, they're more focused on Earth observation, um, but they've launched now 30 something Earth observation satellites. And then their deputy party secretary, I think it was, uh, recently came out and said that they're now developing communication technologies as well because they see batch satellite manufacturing for, for communications as, as an opportunity. So, yeah, I think that, at the, I mean, frankly speaking, in 2022, my kind of median number would be like a couple dozen, maybe a few ish broadband LEO satellites launched by China. And then 2023, you know, kind of ramping up to like quite some dozens to maybe a hundred or or so, uh, Mm -hmm. and then potentially ramping up pretty quickly after that. And I suspect what we'll see just to kind of round out this thought is in the early stages, you know, China satellite networks, this, this operating company will, it seems that they're leaning towards like procuring batches of satellites and then kind of testing out some different things and iterating on those and then making some improvements and then launching another batch. So kind of the the Starlink way in that regard. And we've seen this in a number of different areas of Chinese space. I was reading yesterday an article about the upcoming second launch of the Long March 7, I believe it was. And it was talking about how this second launch incorporates uh, more than 10 specific technological improvements relative to the first Long March 7 launch from like 18 months ago. So I think in a lot of these areas, they're, they're kind of iterating as they go. And, and this is um, it, in any system, I think that's a really interesting way of doing it. Like in Silicon Valley, that, that's a really cool way. But in the Chinese system, I think it's almost even more interesting because there's just so much competition in the commercial, well, in, in the commercial space. Like there's just, it's like there's a, there's many, many uh old, you know, sayings of, you know, if a person can make a dollar in China, they will start a business kind of thing. Like people are just very, very competitive about trying to. And so this idea of relatively free market competition in certain parts of the commercial space sector, plus like rapid iteration and, and kind of uh, these kind of improvements, it, it, it's a really, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting formula, I think. So we'll see where it goes, but it's exciting for, to watch. Exciting times. Now, Blaine, I recall I, I was at International Space University in Beijing, summer of 2007. So an interesting time oh, wow. to be in Beijing. What a, what a time to have been in Beijing. Yeah. Holy cow. Right. It was, it was right after the ASAT test and right before their previous Olympics. So we were right by the the, the nest out there. Um, and they, they were telling us about plans for the Chinese space program. And it just seemed they were so decades off in the future. Human uh, habitats, lunar activities, but all of this has come to fruition. So I guess my question is, they've released a new five-year space plan. Are they as ambitious as they've been the last 10, 15 years? Um, what do you see in this five-year space plan? Yeah, I would, I would say they're, I mean, Yes, in the sense that they're doing really crazy stuff in the next 10 or 15 years. I mean, the last 10 or 15 years have been especially impressive because really China has gone from like a very, very low starting point 15 years ago to like, you know, having a full multiple global satellite navigation constellations and multiple Earth, you know, just a crazy amount Mm -hmm. of stuff going on. But I mean, in the next 15 years, like if you look, for, for example, one of their biggest and also 
relatively well-defined timeline projects is the International Lunar Research Station, right? They're doing with the Russians. And that has a timeline of like, I think it's like 2021 to like post-2036. And during that time, like they've got a pretty well-defined, you know, we're going to send a bunch of missions up there for reconnaissance and to kind of find a good spot to build a base. And we're going to send some other things with the Russians. And then we're going to send some preliminary kind of um, uh, supply missions and this kind of thing. And then in the early 2030s, we're going to send people. So, yeah, I mean, I think if we look at, at plans like that, like that, that seems extremely ambitious. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think the space station has in the sort of medium to long-term interesting potential to expand. They purposely built that in a very modular way. And if you, there's like, there's some speculation, for example, you have the, the Tianha one core module, which is currently up there in orbit and it, it's doing fine. Um, as far as I know, uh, that Tianha one core module, there's a backup on, on earth that, that they built as a backup. And there's kind of always fun rumors in the Chinese space sector that, Oh, maybe one day they could launch the backup because it's modular and it could just, it could dock with the, with the original one. And then they just double the, the size of the, of the core module kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, I mean, in the sort of medium to long term, they've been coy about this. I have not heard any official statements say we want to expand the space station, but you could imagine, uh, you know, it's a modular space station. They could build it out. Um, but yeah, so to, to your, to your point, um, yeah, the most recent space, uh, the, well, the most recent, um, five year, the, yeah, the 2021 space white paper, they call it, um, that most recent five year space white paper, um, pretty ambitious, a lot of big projects. But, but when you see that is the perception that you have when you look at that, Oh, that's, you know, that's 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 crazy. There's no way we'll get to that in in five years. Or is is the impression more? Hey, they they've done this before in a limited time. There's no reason to think why it, it won't happen uh, this time as well. I mean, uh, do, do do you think it's a realistic uh, goals that they're setting? Um, I think the goals tend to be realistic. I mean, they they. I don't like. I, yeah, I I don't think that like the ILRS timeline seems obscenely aggressive. For example, that being said, um, there's elements of the space sector and also of just kind of the, the plan that we've heard about that that do seem a little bit concerning is too strong of a word, but like it will be very interesting to watch. So, for example, I mean, one of the big uh, issues that I see is a lot of the government support in China is done at a provincial and city level, which is very different to the U S where it's done at a kind of NASA level a lot of the time. And, and I guess this is part of the reason is that NASA is just a much bigger organization. They have kind of a mandate to, well, I, I don't know NASA as well as I, I, I'm getting into territory that I'm not 100% familiar with, but, but stop me if I go crazy here, but you know, NASA seems to want to help innovative American space companies by buying stuff from them. Yeah. So if SpaceX builds a really reliable, good ride, like NASA is very happy to go buy launches from SpaceX and they can do that. As far as I know, like they, they, they have the, they're the ones buying the launches. Right. And in China, the, the CNSA, so the China national space administration, their version of NASA, they don't really do that. They're a much smaller organization. They don't really do the missions. So CASC, the big space state-owned enterprise, they're the ones that are really getting all the contracts. And then it's up to them to, uh, you know, subcontract. And they're not helping out the commercial companies because they see these commercial companies as potential competition to them. So digressing, this means the commercial companies, their biggest source of government support is like land from provincial governments or tax incentives from provincial or city governments or other kind of, um, stuff that is is not so easy to coordinate at a national level. And so what you have now, for example, is 
25 launch companies that have all partnered up with 25 different city or provincial governments. And in like five or seven or 10 years, if you listen to all of them, we're going to have 25 intelligent rocket industrial bases in these 25 cities or, or provinces. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of need for rockets in China in five or 10 years, but I cannot imagine that the most efficient way of doing that is to have 25 commercial <laughs> rocket industrial bases in 25 cities or provinces. I really have mm -hmm. to think mm -hmm. a higher degree of like top-down coordination would be helpful there. And so I think when we look at what that might look like in five or 10 years, I suspect it's going to look like we have three or four or five like highly competitive launch companies in like fairly successful launch industrial bases. And then like 15 or 18 or something like kind of ghost towns where it's like, well, yeah, this launch company showed up and they tried to build a factory and uh, they ended up, you know, land space took over the whole market. It's like, well, that, yeah. And, and I guess getting, getting back, I mean, uh, one of the earlier points about, you know, um, uh, is the invest, you know, what, what areas is the, uh, is investment going into one of the other things that that's an interesting um, kind of a, a, a uh, drawing a blank on the words, interesting dimension on which to look at the investment is, the newness of companies. So you still see new launch companies being founded today and, and raising money today. So like last year you had a company called Orion space raise like 75 million us dollars in their first funding round as like the 22nd Chinese commercial launch company to be founded. Mm -hmm. So again, it, it kind of is like, well, the long-term plan is, is, you know, there's a lot of space stuff going on, but is there really need for 25 commercial launch companies? Um, yeah. And that, that could be a question yeah. globally. I mean, there's so many launch companies, so we can ask that question. We have you get a launch company. You get a launch company. <laughs> um, Everyone gets so a launch company. With, with all of this activity and launch and constellations, you mentioned the, the space station, so much happening. Are, do you see a discussion about the sustainability aspect of orbit? That's something that we are obviously very interested in. And so this issues of uh, servicing and, and, and sustainability, is that a, a thread that you see being, uh, being discussed or, or coming up in the conversation? A little bit. I think we're in the early stages, but, but yes. Yeah. So for example, I participated in uh, November of last year in a, uh, a track two diplomatic discussion with uh, some people from the U S and some people from China about like space situational awareness and, and space traffic management. And the Chinese um, representatives were, I mean, they were aware of, of the importance of space traffic management and you know, space situational awareness, but, but they were saying that in China, you know, the, the, the mechanisms for this are not as well developed. So what, one of the points they mentioned is that most data on, uh, on space traffic, I suppose, is, is managed only by CNSA and the CNSA then kind of distributes that, but, but there's not there's not a very kind of open area where you can kind of see what's going on in orbit, I, I guess, in, in that way. Um, and, and so again, you're, you're starting to see, I think some uh, interest in, in kind of sustainability, but I think we're at an early enough stage and, and a lot of companies are, are still kind of small scale enough and, and not launching a large enough number of satellites to where their bigger concern is, is surviving, getting satellites into orbit. And, and then eventually, uh, you know, probably there'll be more, more, focused on sustainability. One thing I will say, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that we've not really seen any Chinese company take a similar angle to, to like an astroscale, say, you know, we want to go in and clean up space. I mean, we've seen 
there's a company called Origin Space. They they talk about like asteroid mining, and then they also kind of talk about doing like some kind of space junk cleanup, maybe sometimes. But they're not. I mean, asteroid mining is really their core thing, um, mm. and and that's really the only company I would know of in China that's really thinking about doing a kind of cleaning up orbit. I mean, we've also seen. I would mention that, and, and I guess this there's there's a kind of contrast with the state-owned enterprise. So Cask. They're, I think, a bit more conservative in general. They have a lot more to lose. And so they've been developing what seem to be technologies that are meant to you know, be focused on debris mitigation. So there was the, I think it was the Shurjian 21 satellite, like just last week or something, that apparently grappled with something Geo. and threw it. Yeah, right, yeah. And um, and again, that would have been coming from CASC, so the, the main space state of enterprise. And I think they both because they're a larger company with more to lose and also because they're, you know, they're government owned and, and what the government wants to happen in space usually at least initially is done through cask. I think they're more focused on developing specific technologies related to this, you know, kind of uh, orbital debris removal or, or other kind of let's say sustainable space initiatives. But yeah, I think on the commercial side, it's just, it's, it's so early. And I guess the other last thing I'll, I'll mention about these commercial companies in this context is, you know, they don't, they don't really know what they want to be when they grow up, right? Like the <laughs> regulatory environment in China is so uncertain that no company really knows what will and will not become legal in the next few years. Mm. And so this is why, for example, I, I think this is part of the reason that you see, um, you know, a lot of companies kind of doing all things at the same time and then pivoting and saying, well, actually, we stopped doing this. We're now mostly focusing on, you know, like, Let's, for example, manufacturing satellites, manufacturing components for satellites, manufacturing antennas, and like developing satellite applications. You have companies trying to do all these things. <laughs> and, you know, eventually some of them say, well, you know, maybe we no longer want to operate our own constellation. We just want to focus on building satellites because it becomes apparent that, you know, commercial companies are not going to be able to operate communications constellations, something like that. So I think with the commercial companies, they really have to kind of pivot a lot they really don't know what is and is not going to be allowed for them in the kind of near to medium to long term certainly and so i i guess things like you know space traffic management or space sustainability in, in general are just kind of not at the top of their mind i guess it is a precarious mm. place i think I, I i i make the analogy which i i quite like mostly because i like hanging out in casinos but i make the analogy you know the card the card counter in the house right so like if you're the chinese state-owned space sector if you're cask you are the house you will always win you can sit there and just deal cards as fast or as slow as you want and you you know that at the end of the night you are definitely going to win if you play enough hands of blackjack right <laughs> and if you're a commercial company you're like the card counter so you sit there and you you play very tight until the card count gets very good in your favor so until the regulatory environment changes in such a way to where you can actually make money and then you just go to town for like 10 <laughs> minutes and then you get out as quickly as possible with the money and really this is kind of the world that commercial space companies live in in china today in the sense that it's just it's what it's a very uncertain regulatory environment still and, and uncertain in the sense that unlike the us where i think it's okay to uh, uh, you know what is it ask for apology apology ask for a forgiveness rather than permission yeah mm -hmm. i think in china it's it's rather the reverse like you you really don't want to do something without it being 100 percent okay to do that thing right you, you don't want to be asking for for forgiveness later from the the uh, party I don't think. um 
<laughs> Usually in regulatory environments, that's the way it should be anyway. But um, indeed, I digress. I digress. Uh, so let's let's talk about Chinese cooperation amongst the world in in space endeavors. So how are you seeing China interact with the global community at the UN with NGOs? You talked about that that track two dialogue. Um, industry groups, you know, what? where is this relationship going? Is China going to be more amenable to dialogue and collaboration, less, the same? I think more. I mean, I, I think that the issue, well, the, the inter, their international, for example, if we look at their white paper from a couple of weeks ago, they talk a lot about the importance of the UN as the kind of the overarching entity on, on kind of the governance of space issues. And I think one of the issues with like in particular us china relations in, in anything but but in space particularly probably um neither of these countries wants to be the junior partner in anything right especially if they're doing something with the other country it's, it's impossible to imagine and so you have a situation where i think china has a very real incentive to pro to say the un is is the like if there's if we think about space today, it's like, well, you could conceivably say there's really two kind of powers that would be most dominant in, in space. There's the kind of the hard power entity of the, the U.S., which has the kind of strongest space infrastructure and kind of where the, 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 you know, the leading space country. And there's the U.N., which is kind of the, the multinational kind of like the UNOSA having the, the kind of if we think about these two entities, it's very clear that China would say we are more keen to have UNOSA be the final say on anything because it's just, you know, it's UNOSA, they have more. And so I think in that regard, a lot of their collaboration will kind of be pushing this idea that, that UNOSA is, is the kind of the, the international organization that, that it is. Um, but then other than that, I think, yeah, in terms of international collaboration by China, it, either bilateral or, or multilateral, but kind of not at a fully global scale, I think we're going to see a lot more, you know, com countries wanting to go on to the Chinese space station. They like the Chinese space station. They, they have a really long English language PDF of here's all the different research racks that we have on here. And here's all the different things you can do. And here's all the different experiments. And if you're a foreign partner, and if you want to put an experiment on here, like here's the email address to send the application to basically like it, it's pretty, they're building a pretty impressive space infrastructure and they're making it fairly clear that it's rather open to international partners to use that space infrastructure. So I think in that regard, um, the state is is going to be doing you know, more international collaboration that way. Um, the other thing I guess I would point to is the commercial companies and the the way that they are um, slowly doing more international business. I mean, I'm getting more Chinese commercial companies coming to me saying, "Yeah, you know, we're we're kind of starting to look international now. Like, what what should we what markets should we be doing? What what should we be looking at? How should we be thinking about the international markets?" that kind of thing. So at a commercial level, I think you're also starting to get some of that. And I think that's going to be particularly interesting to see, because I think you see right now, um, in particular in Europe and in kind of like developing world, a relatively limited component ecosystem. Like if you want to, if I'm building a CubeSat in Europe and I'm limited to European parts, I don't know how easy it is to build a CubeSat. I mean, I, it could be very easy and I could be like, you know, just completely misspeaking here. But as far as I know, that's not a particularly cheap, easy proposition. And I think a lot of, a lot of the benefits of, or, you know, I think a lot of those components, I think China's making them at, at a, at a lower cost. And I think one of the other things that we've seen 
in, in various interviews with Chinese space companies is them talking about this idea of, yeah, some of the parts in our satellites need to be like, you know, really space certified and like, you know, very high end everything. But some of it we can use commercial off the shelf. And again, with this iteration thing, it's like, well, we have some satellites that we try all the, you know, we, we put this component as being just kind of a regular commercial off the shelf component and see how that works. And we see this one doesn't. And, and so I think in that regard, you're going to see this um, potentially a, a I, I don't know if I'm using this word correctly, but disruption of the um, of, of the kind of supply chain, let's say, for, for subsystems level components at an international level, because I think a lot of Chinese companies are, are starting to to do that. And I mean, just one example, like onboard antennas, I, I see Chinese companies developing like competent onboard antennas for a third to a fourth of the price of European made onboard antennas. And I mean, granted, the performance is perhaps not exactly the same, but for a lot of commercial space companies, I would think if you're kind of like on a shoestring budget and you're talking about a three or four times price difference, like it, it's, yeah, it's probably good, it's probably good enough. It, it's a huge issue. And it's something we, we, we deal with. I mean, supply chain management and trying to find uh, reasonably costing, but reliable components, it's going to drive everything in the development of any commercial sector, not just space and, and any commercial industry, especially one when you're dealing with innovations uh, and, and new technology. So yeah, disruption is the right word. And, and to see where this goes, um, uh, from from China on the space development side is going to be fascinating. Uh, Blaine, we could talk a long time here. There's so much to talk about. And for those who are interested, um, Blaine's got a great uh, uh, website and podcast as well. Dong, Dong Feng, am I pronouncing that right? Dong Feng Hour? Yep. Dong Feng Hour, thank you. Uh, so it's awesome. We, I've, I've looked at, I, uh, follow your tweets and I've, I've watched, uh, I've, I've read a lot on, on your website there. It's fantastic. So for those who are, uh, who are interested in hearing more about what Blaine has to say about the development of the Chinese space sector, definitely check that out. And, uh, we look forward to talking some more Blaine. Um, so we're going to, we're going to close out here, but we'd like to close out with a few kind of rapid fire fun questions fun so, yeah i like yeah. fun questions let's all right let's so see. are you are you ready to take a, 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 a just a couple of these okay okay um all right we're talking a lot about partnerships this year what has been the best space partnership real or fictional in wow. history the best space partnership real or fictional it would have to be um Oh my God! I'm drawing a blank on the name. Uh, Barf is the dog. John Candy. Oh, wow. Spaceballs. Yes, yeah, no, Spaceballs. But then who's? What's the guy? Um, oh my God! Uh, yeah, what the is guy the, guy's the Han name? Solo, the, the Han Solo character. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. It's uh, yeah. yeah. Oh my God! I I I gotcha. I'm with you, but I'm drawing. Is it Lo here. Lone Star? Lone yes! Star. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Lone Star. When he put when uh, yeah, Rick Moranis oh, pulls down boy. the. Uh, so yeah, it's got to be uh, Lone Star and. Uh, and uh, yeah. That's great. That's great. Good one. Man. Pull awesome a Spaceballs answer. reference out. That's fantastic. That, Spaceballs, the flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. Okay, so um, let's go fast forward five years. Can you give us three predictions about China's space activities next five years? Um, what are we going to see in the next five years? So we're going to see, I mean, well, we'll see a Leo broadband constellation start to get deployed, like finally get formally announced. So that's going to be a pretty big thing. And I think that's going to be interesting to watch, like 
like the digital Silk Road angle there, like to what extent does Huawei start to try to integrate this network into their 5G networks, for example, something like that. Um, But that's going to be something to definitely watch in the next five years. Um, I'm going to be really interested to watch the continued movement of senior leaders between the space sector and the government. This is something that not you, you don't hear too much about, but in so basically within the Chinese I'll try to keep this brief because it gets a little bit hairy here for a second. But basically, you know, you have you have the government, you have the state-run enterprises, and and you have the the party exists within both. So within the companies, you have your party secretary of the company, right? And then you have in the government, there's the well, there's the party, and there's the government. So you have people, for example, the current. He used to be until very recently the governor of Guangdong, which is like one of the it's the second most populous province in a huge hundred and ten million person province. The former governor, who's now the party secretary of a different province, he used to be the head of the CNSA. And before that, he was like the general manager of CASC. And there's a few such people in China that are very high level government people that have come from the space sector. And part of the reason is, at least I hear, the perception that the space sector is relatively honest among state-owned enterprises. Like if you own, sorry, if you're running a state-owned oil and gas company, the opportunity for graft, I guess, is rather higher than if you're running a state-owned space company in the sense that if you do graft in space, the rocket might blow up, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I, I, digressing, over the next five years, watching this continued interplay between the leadership of the state-owned enterprises and the provincial governments. And I think it's a really important topic because, as I mentioned before, a lot of these companies are getting a lot of support from city and provincial governments. So when you have Mm -hmm. a former space industry administrator who now goes and runs a province, you always want to watch and see how is the space sector developing in that province because they're probably Mm -hmm. going to get some preferential treatment. Hmm. Um, So let me think if I I can find a more interesting third example, because that was a very kind of China, real politic kind of something. (laughs) I like the deep dive, Uh, though, but inside baseball. What else? So we got the constellation. I I think the lunar stuff is going to be really interesting. I mean, ILRS is is starting. I mean, so we have, what, Chang'e 6 and 7 and 8, although I think it's actually going to go Chang'e 7 and then Chang'e 6 and then Chang'e 8 or possibly six, eight, seven. It, it's not sequential, but digressing to see those three missions. And also there's a lot of international collaboration on those missions. There's a few different payloads that are being, mm. um, or at least on Chang'e six. I don't think we know very much yet about, about seven and eight. Um, so yeah, I think those are going to be pretty, pretty cool to watch. I, I guess one bonus one that's going to be a bit more fun is just like the continued pop culturization of space in China. So like, for example, you have the big launch site down in Hainan that's uh, where you've had, people make this pilgrimage to Hainan every time they do a big mm. launch there. You have thousands of people go to the beach and like, you know, you've seen uh, the Tianwen one, the, the, uh, the Mars orbiter that, that's supporting the Rover. It took those selfies the other week uh, for what was it? Uh, Chinese new year. And it sent them back to earth and people just went completely crazy in China for that. So this mm. kind of pop culturization of space has been a pretty cool thing to watch. I think that that's going to keep going. So that, that that can lead well into our final question here. There, there's been a few uh, Korean space TV shows and movies recently, one called Space Sweepers, which actually we reviewed because that's what we call ourselves. There's one recently called The Silent Sea. There's been a couple of, um, you know, and then, and then America, you know, from the U.S., there's always big space, space Moonfall movies. Moonfall's coming out. I mean, you know, there's always this thread of um, yeah. space movies. What about in China? Are there, uh, on the pop culture side, are there any Chinese space movies or TV shows that uh, that have kind of grabbed public attention or that you'd recommend? 
So the one is I'm just trying to the Wandering Earth is oh, I love that movie. That's yeah, movie. and we did uh, we did a deep dive on that one on, on the Dongfang Hour about it might be almost a year ago now, um, where we had on this this uh, she was a, she's a scholar in, in Manchester who studies like Chinese space culture, and we talked about this film and kind of the different cultural elements of the film and and kind of had to, but so that that one I. To be entirely honest with you, and this is a little bit shameful, I have not actually seen the film. My two co-hosts had seen the film. Uh, the, the podcast episode was more about Chinese space culture. It was not specifically about the film, but but the, the film looked interesting, and I should go and see it. I, I'm more. I, okay, no spoilers then. Yeah, <laughs> none, none yeah. of us can give them. The last uh, the last space movie I watched though was quite recently. What the heck was it called? It was uh, man. I watched it on my flight coming over here, and it was the one. one no, no, it was an American one. It was quite recent space movie where, uh, man, I'm, I can't believe I'm drawing a blank on this one. What was that movie called that I watched? It's still early in Bangkok. It is still early. I haven't had my coffee yet. But if I remember the actor in that movie, I will definitely remember what. Holy cow. Oh, I know. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll get it. Uh, yeah, I'll get it he'll here. Be, he'll be curious to see because, I mean, the Chinese cinema culture is obviously big. I oh, mean, Doom. Doom was the one that I watched. Okay. Oh, yeah. Doom, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, blockbusters in China, like space-related ones. So if you see any coming out, you know, let us know. Yeah. We'll, we'll I will do. We'll yeah, that, that's yeah. yeah that, that's something that I'm, I'm less familiar with than I should be. The kind of I, I don't I'm not I'm not very familiar with American blockbusters either. To be, <laughs> took, me, took me five minutes to find the name of Dune here, but, but um, <laughs> yeah, but you pulled barf out of out of your hat really yeah. quickly. That's that's pretty good. Your, your yeah. is good. <laughs> well, again, it's the uh, the older space movies are probably a bit more uh, a bit more my yeah, my style. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, Blaine, thanks so much for joining us. It's a fascinating conversation, and uh, we look forward to keeping in touch and hearing more about what's happening. Thanks a lot, Chris, Charity, and uh, it was great speaking with you as well. And looking forward to uh, to seeing more uh, more space sweeping. And you know, you guys are doing some really cool stuff. So I, I always uh, I always like watching uh, watching you guys do well. So keep it Thanks. up. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Cool. Have a good one. Bye. 